For decades, America has tried to combat the harms of drug use primarily through banning drugs and incarcerating people who use them. But this has caused a violent underground market for drugs, increasing crime in our communities. It's caused contaminated substances, increasing overdose deaths, and it's caused incarceration to skyrocket, destabilizing families. What we're doing isn't working. Crime, death, and broken families are the collateral damage of using the criminal justice system to address the public health issue of drugs. If you're looking for a better path forward, you're in the right place. What if we changed our drug policies to prioritize life, health, harm reduction, and thriving? And what if it benefited all of us? Our criminal justice approach to drugs had a beginning and it can have an end. Join us on the journey to end it for good. I'm Christina Dent, your host. And if you're new here, End It For Good is a nonprofit started in 2019 based in Mississippi that invites people to support approaches to drugs that prioritize life and the opportunity to thrive. This podcast is one of the ways we do that. You can head over to episode 34 to hear my story as a conservative Christian foster mom changing my own mind on the best path forward with drugs, and then come on back and dive in deeper. I didn't change my mind overnight and most other people don't either. We all need time to learn, think, ask questions, and explore. Whatever your perspective is, I'm glad you're here. Let's journey together. Welcome back to the End It For Good podcast. I'm Christina Dent, your host. I'm here today with Brett Montague, who is the CEO of End It For Good. Um, We've been doing a series on the stories of our team, how we changed our minds. Uh, Everyone on the End It For Good team has gone through a process of personal change of mind. That's just kind of how it's worked out. Um, on these issues, how we handle drugs, drug use, and addiction. And this is our 50th episode. So Brett's coming on as our uh, fearless leader to talk through his story and to celebrate the 50th episode of the End It For Good podcast. So Brett, welcome. Christina, great to be here with you. Thanks for having me on this show at, you know, the half century mark on the pace to 100 shows. We're going to get there. You've had some great guests so far. Um, and it's it's such an honor to uh, to be here with you for this episode. And, uh, you know, if I can just tell you, too, it's it's been an honor working with you. Uh, you know, I, I, I can't believe it's almost been two years um, and the journey has been tremendous. And I look forward to uh, to the road ahead. Uh, you you two are just uh, such a blessing and an up and coming power high powerhouse to, you know, uh, really shift the paradigm on an issue that is going to save lives and restore communities. So bravo to you. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, so if you're wondering, uh, wait a second, I thought Christina was the fearless leader. How is Brett the fearless leader? I was the fearless leader until a little over a year ago. Um, and it became unsustainable for me to simultaneously run end it for good and create content and do interviews and write and all of these other things that I do for our work. And so I asked our board if they would uh, open a CEO position, hire a CEO to run the organization. Um, and they did that. And Brett came on as our um, CEO. I had worked with Brett previously in a volunteer capacity. He coordinated one of our most successful community discussions as a volunteer in his home um, city of Hattiesburg, Mississippi. And then he came on to our team as our director of community engagement um, in the fall of 2020. And then a few months after that, um, the board hired him to be our CEO. And so it's been fantastic. It's been a little over a year. It's been an awesome transition for me into being able to focus on the things where I feel like my gifts and skills are best um, used and Brett using his uh, leadership skills and um, leading in it for good. It's been a fantastic transition and it has continued to grow our movement Um, even things like, uh, the summit last fall, Brett had this idea of having a legislative panel at the summit. And I was like, no, that's not going to work. We're like, our, our issue is too touchy. Like there's just no way that, um, you know, that we're going to get legislators who are open to participating in that. And Brett was like, no, I don't, I don't think so. I think, um, I think we can. I think we're, you know, what we're doing is something people can get on board with, even if they don't agree with everything that we're advocating for. Um, and he made this fantastic legislative panel happen. And so things like that, that that people um, 
you know, maybe they think, oh, that was Christine's brainchild. No, it was Brett's brainchild. <laughs> Christina was trying to pull the brakes and say, I don't know about this. Um, so Brett's forward thinking visionary uh, has been fantastic um, and a great uh, compliment to the things that I'm gifted at and the rest of our team is gifted at. And so it's been, um, it's been really great and, and have loved this uh, role for me and having him in that CEO role. So we're going to dive into um, Brett's story and his journey of changing his mind. It's really interesting, even in our team meetings, how all of our different perspectives come to bear in the conversations that we have around the work that we do. And so, you know, my experience is, is not one of, um, you know, personal family involvement with uh, addiction. It's through this lens of being a foster mom. Um, and, you know, Jennifer on our team, her perspective is one who, you know, not having a personal connection to it, learning about it just as a um, something she was coming to without a personal connection to it. And so uh, Angela coming out of addiction herself brings a different perspective. Um, and Brett will get into his story, which is um, kind of a different perspective as well. And so it's been, it's great as we have all these discussions, we're bringing these different perspectives to the table um, as we develop events and things like that, where we can say, you know, I think actually for someone with my experience, this is how that's going to feel, or that's how that might sound. Um, and it's really, really helpful. So Brett, bring us into your world, how, you know, tell us a little bit about yourself and what was your journey to changing your own mind on drug policy? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it has been a journey. Oftentimes it's felt like a, a really um, just mind numbing and stomach aching and heartbreaking roller coaster ride uh, more, more than a journey, but, you know, nonetheless, you know, um, uh, life, life is a journey. And so much of what happens to us, you know, I know this is very cliche, but I think it's so true. Um, you know, and I'll make the case in point here in just a bit, but you know, uh, so much of what happens in life is about how we respond to it, you know, rather than, uh, what happens in and of itself. And, and, um, you know, had, had you asked me, you know, 10 years ago, or really even five years ago, if I would be, doing what I do today, um, or much less even working in the cause that I'm working in, I would have told you that you were absolutely crazy. I would never advocate for that, but you know, here, here we are. And it's been, I think our whole team, um, if we had had lunch together, like four years ago, it would have been like, what are those crazy people talking about? <laughs> and <laughs> you're, now no, all you're of us are working at it. Right. It's true. You're all of us were right. like, what? No. Yeah. Yeah. Nor, nor do I think, you know, the collection of us together, you know, that like, would I wind up working with those people that come from this industry, this industry, and this industry that we would all be on the same team, but, you know, here we are, you know, our, um, you know, not to get over the top religious, but uh, our creator has brought us here and, you know, we're just, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to meet a mission, but um, it, it has been a journey. So just a little, a little bit of background on me. Um, uh, so um, I am, I am a native Mississippian. Um, I, um, I'm actually a, uh, fifth generation, uh, child and native of Hattiesburg, um, and, uh, was raised in a, um, conservative, you know, Christian, uh, uh, environment upbringing, um, my, um, uh, but on my dad's side, I come from a line of very successful attorneys on my mom's side, you know, a line of very successful uh, educators. Uh, so, um, you know, we were uh, we were definitely, you know, taught how to be good citizens, good people, be learned, be curious um, and, you know, not only to do things right, but to do the right thing. So we were, you know, raised with the same values. I was born. Uh, in July of 81, so I'm, I'm 40 this year. Uh, I have one sibling, uh, one um, uh, older sibling. His name is Douglas. He's two and a half years older than me, you know, raised raised in the same household. Um, as we as we grew older, we actually had in our neighborhood, we had um, b- between. Um, so my brother's two and a half years older than me. There was one kid that was two years older than him and one kid that was three years younger than me. And between that age range, we had 27 kids in our neighborhood coming up. So there was like plenty of activity always going on and we ran in the same circles. Right. Um, And we had, you know, some of the same, a lot of the same hobbies, some of the same bad habits as we got into, uh, into high school and college. Um, And um, 
you know, and, and, and some of that also included as, as we, you know, really got into uh, college is uh, experimenting with some different substances. Um, And, um, you know, it, it was just, you know, here, here and there, like any normal uh, college kid. Um, but over time, my brother uh, fell into the trap of a heroin addiction. Um, and I'll, I'll go more, uh, you know, in, into that um, and how he is today in, in just a bit. Um, but, um, you, you know, I, I over, over the years, I've done some soul searching on it and trying to identify, like, where did our past take two different, you know, uh, courses? Uh, um, where did they part? And, uh, I, it hit me, um, you know, an, a number of years back. Uh, so between my sophomore and junior year in college, um, I, um, got the opportunity, uh, to get an experience that unlocked my curiosity that most young people do not get. And I went and studied abroad in Spain for a year. Um, and it was a life-changing experience, um, just very rewarding, you know, learn their culture, you know, their language, just immerse myself. And it was just like, this is so fascinating. And it, and it got me interested uh, in languages. It got me interested in politics. It, you know, it just got me interested in a lot, of, a whole lot of issues surrounding civil society and history, right? Um, and when I came back, I, I declared two majors. Uh, at Southern Miss, both my brother and I were at Southern Miss, by the way, together. Um, and um, one of those majors was in foreign languages, studying Spanish, and the other one was in international development. And under that study in international development, you have to have an emphasis. So I let my emphasis be on the political and um, uh, social development of Latin American countries. Um, and I just got, I got really fascinated by it. I got really into it. And so I just dove myself into that, like joining different clubs, everything. So like any notion of partying, anything just kind of went to the side because like this thing over here was like, it was my nirvana. It was my high. It was my, my consuming thing. Right. And, um, and you're still fluent in Spanish today. Yes. Yes. It's impressive. Um, Yeah. Well, 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 thank you. I, I do get to practice it some, um, and you know, my, um, my, my guilty pleasure, uh, actually sometimes is, um, multiple times a week is sitting on my couch, eating ice cream and watching Telemundo. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I still listen to Spanish and watch Spanish on the TV. So that helps me kind of maintain it. Right. You know, you got to keep riding the bike to not get rusty. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, um, so yeah, I'm, I'm able to maintain it. Um, actually at one point, yeah. Um, I, I was, uh, fluent in a third language in Guarani, uh, and I'll get into, into why that was here in just a bit, but, um, you know, nobody speaks Guarani and there's no TV shows in Guarani in America. So, you know, it's kind of gone by the wayside. That being said, you know, that's, that's over here in right field or left field pulling, reining it back in. Um, so I got really into my studies and in, in my senior year, I was kind of scratching my head on what am I going to do with my career? Um, and I knew I was very service oriented, you know, I, uh, I, I did all sorts of volunteer, you know, things coming up, um, and, um, knew I was fascinated by other cultures. So I applied to the Peace Corps. Uh, I knew it would jolt my career. You know, the Peace Corps is a humanitarian arm of the U.S. government. And, you know, it's a, it, these days it's a, a whole bunch of resume building professionals who are also happen to be humanitarians uh, joining. So I, I applied and I was uh, after a six month, very rigorous process. I was accepted and I did two years of service in Peace Corps in Paraguay, South America. Um, uh, and that's actually, that's where I learned Guarani, the third language. Um, but, um, so I did two years of service, uh, down there is very, uh, again, rewarding, empowering experience down there. But I, I bring that up to say that it was in my second year of service, uh, in Paraguay in 2007, when I got a call from my dad, uh, who was obviously here stateside. And he called me, letting me know that uh, that Douglas, my brother, uh, had entered uh, into treatment, into rehab after, you know, falling in a dangerous cycle of a heroin addiction. 
Um, and, um, you know, being on the other side of the equator, healing, hearing that you feel very helpless, you know, there's not much you can do, but, you know, it's there. And, um, you know, so I, I, I started thinking about it down there, just, you know, um, kind of in that helpless, you know, way, but knowing that my brother is very smart, you know, he can get through this, yada, yada, yada. But I was thinking about it and I was like, where did we, you know, how did this come to be? And it hit me that I was out in the world making a difference, moving along with my life and career. And Douglas, Douglas's life and career hadn't really taken off yet. So he was turning to other things to fill the void. He was turning to, in this case, heroin to, to fill the void, to, to numb it. Hey friends, this podcast is just a part of the work we do at End It For Good, inviting more people to this conversation on changing the way we approach drugs and addiction. We want strong families, safe communities, and policies that uphold the dignity and value of every single human life. If you're not signed up for our monthly newsletter yet, head on over to enditforgood.com, scroll to the bottom of the page, and sign up. You'll get all the info on the rest of the work that we do, including live events, and it'll get you plugged in to the End It For Good movement. And so, you know, um, from there, fast forwarding 10 years from 2007 to 2017, um, in between that time period, um, my my brother uh, struggled with his addiction. He um, yeah, and my family had done everything you know that we knew to do to respond to his drug use and and to help him. Uh, he was in and out of rehab seven to eight times. Um, you know, we put we the family spent a lot of money. We put him in elite treatment centers. There were interventions. Um, we left him sitting in uh, a county jail once for three months. And, uh, you know, no matter what we tried, we tried throwing everything at the wall and nothing seemed to stick. Nothing seemed to last. Um, and then in 2017, on February 25th, 2017, on his 38th birthday, uh, Douglas uh, suffered an overdose, an heroin overdose. Um, and, uh, he he was resuscitated with Narcan, by the way, he survived. Uh, but um, it was it was a rock bottom moment for Douglas. And it was a watershed moment for my family. The family struggled on, you know, on how how to respond. And, you know, everybody's just hopeless scratching their head. But I wasn't as a brother and him being my only brother, I wasn't ready to give up. Um, so the the day after his overdose, um, I uh, traveled to where he was. He was in another state and uh, I got word that he had been put up in a motel six in this motel six that you and I wouldn't find ourselves caught dead in. If you know what I mean, but my brother was in there. So I went there and I just sat with him. Uh, I, I, you know, I, um, but at first, you know, I, I was, you know, still going to use the status quo tactics of trying to, you know, push him, yada, yada, yada. But the first real day sitting there with him, he's sitting in the hotel room watching these, he's laying on the bed, watching these stupid TV shows, despondent and depressed with no real sense of purpose or meaning. And it hit me, Alan, I was like, whoa, um, okay, there is nothing that I can do here to make him, you know, seek help or to get him better. And my goal is to, for him to get better, right? But there's nothing that I can do here. If he's going to change, if he's going to get better, it has to come from him and not me. So I decided to just change my tack, Christina. And, um, and I decided to just sit there and listen and be there. And that's it. Not impose, not, you know, force in, in anything, you know, not, not, not try, try to persuade or coerce. And after about a day and a half, I could see that he started to look at me through a different lens, you know, and um, he started trusting me a little bit more, was looking at me as a little bit less of, of a coercive agent, if you will. Um, and then uh, I had taken off work, you know, for the full week. I ended up staying there four days because um, it took four days. And after four days, um, it was interesting. Um, he had come fully around to seeing me as less of an antagonist, trying to bend him to my will. 
and uh, more as a brother, just showing love, concern, and compassion. And he ended up making the decision that he needed to make in the first place. And he told me, he said, you know, and I'm paraphrasing, but he said, you know, Brett, I, I want to get a job. I want to get my life back, but I know I need to get help first. And I wanted to get into treatment. And I responded to him and I said, Douglas, or is, is this what you want to do? Or are you telling me this to make me feel better about me and my trip here? Because if that's the rationale, I'm, you, you know, I, I'm, what do you want? And he was like, this is what I want. And I said, how can I help? Um, and and I so I, I. One of the things yeah, I yeah. think is, is so like relatable to many, many, many other families from your story is just the, that tension between like, what do you do? Do you, you know, you, most families, you know, are trying the, uh, the shame and blame route, the coercion route, the tough interventions. Maybe we can wake them up. Um, maybe we cut them off. Maybe we, you know, help them hit, you know, quote unquote rock bottom by making their life really awful. Um, and I think that that sense of like helplessness and kind of this tension between we simultaneously know that we can't force them to do anything. And yet we want so badly to force them to get better because families want what's, what's best. I mean, they, you know, we, we want each other to have these healthy, thriving lives. And so it's, it's out of a, a good place that these oh, kinds of responses the yeah, come from. And yet I think for every family who has ever walked through an addiction with a loved one, has recognized also we can't force them to do anything. I mean, even if you can, even if you can force them into treatment through some sort of, you know, court order or something like that, there's sobriety is a choice by the person who is making the choice. No family member can make that choice for them, no matter how long they're in treatment or how, you know, what kind of parameters you put around them or anything like that. And so I, I, I think that struggle, that tension that you felt is a tension that's so relatable to, to so many people trying to figure out what do we do for this person that we love. And, you know, and, and there may be a, you know, a person or two or some people out there that, you know, that more imposing tactic works on, but for the vast majority of people, um, I've just come to see and learn and know that it does not, it's just ineffective. Um, you know, we can talk about the humanity, you know, the inhumane or humane nature behind it, but it's just largely ineffective as well, because here's the reality, Christina. And I think this is a very important point to make is that, you know, people, my brother, Douglas, uh, for instance, he is responsible for his own life, but at the same time, he is free to live his own life. And his decisions are his decisions. His decisions are not my decisions. Um, and we cannot live life for our loved ones at, at the end of the day. It, in order for it to be sustainable, it has to come from within. It has to come from them. They have to want it. Um, you know, so, um, so that was really the big, you know, the big aha for me there, like, after, you know, checking Douglas into treatment, hitting the road back home to Mississippi, back here to Hattiesburg, was it hit me? And I was, uh, I was like, oh, so like all that mattered was Douglas getting better. That like the, that was the only end game. Right. But the means to get there this time were influence, you know, and compassion rather than coercion and enforcement. And it just, it, made me start, you know, kind of scratching my head. Does this work? Does this approach work more often than not? Um, and, and so really, you know, it was just, it was just, you know, a source of curiosity for me. You know, I didn't really move on it yet after this experience too, too much. Um, and, um, you know, and, and uh, of course, you know, at, at this point I've, taken this issue and made it my career, made it my mission. And we can talk a little bit later about, you know, why, why um, it, it's, it's, it was so important, you know, to change careers on, but, um, and, and, and actually I'll get into a little bit of that now. Um, uh, um, so 11 months after this experience with my brother in 2017 on his birthday, uh, I had a separate uh, experience that really served as the, uh, 
is the straw that broke the camel's back. I had a, another experience related to this issue in a completely different setting. This was a work-based experience, and I was working as a human resources manager at a manufacturing facility for a company uh, right outside of Hattiesburg uh, in, in 2018. And um, a, um, a candidate for hire walked through my doors um, and he was a, a very strong candidate. He was uh, impressive. He aced his interview, asked all the right questions about position and company, and I wanted to hire him. Uh, but there was just one small hangup. Uh, and this young man disclosed on his application, he was honest, and he disclosed on his application uh, that he had just uh, finished serving a two and a half year prison sen- sentence in our state prison system. Um, and, uh, you know, on, on a uh, felony charge. So um, backing up three years from there with this guy at 23 years old, this young man, six months after falling in uh, the trap of a um, of opioid addiction, um, the, this young man entered our state prison system after being arrested on a felony drug possession charge. It was a felony heroin possession charge, but what it boiled down to is it was a felony non-violent drug possession charge, non-violent drug possession charge. I need to emphasize that. Um, but it was a felony nonetheless. So I had to do my due diligence and get concurrence. I still wanted to make him an offer. He was a great candidate. Um, and, um, I could visibly see he wanted to rebuild his life that he was being honest. Um, and so I went to my, um, you know, I, I went to my supervisor, uh, my superior for concurrence. And unfortunately she vetoed my decision, uh, concerned that, um, making an offer, hiring someone with a felony who had struggled with an addiction would set a bad precedent for our company. Um, and, um, you know, it, it, it wasn't so much because of company policy as it was, you know, her perspective that it would set that bad president. Um, so I, I just walked away from this conversation, just really puzzled. And, um, and it made me start asking some other questions like, what are we trying to accomplish? Are we trying to punish or are we trying to restore? And it, and it somewhat made me go back to my brother because during this whole 10-year journey with Douglas, every approach that we tried with him was imposing and punitive, and it did not work. And then when I changed my tack to this more, you know, um, uh, compassionate, you know, really restorative-based approach, it worked. But that being said, in, in this case, like, uh, here was a young man who had you know, first of all, he had an addiction and instead of being met with help, he was met with handcuffs, did his time in prison, did not become a criminal in prison, which can happen. Um, you know, it came out and is trying to rebuild his life. And we're telling him, no, we don't, we don't want you back in the legal economy. We want you in the shadows. And this brought up another question for me. Now, since he is essentially barred from working in the legal economy, What would this young man resort to, you know, to provide for his family? Um, And he did have, yeah, he had a wife, he had a wife and a, and a, yeah, he had a wife and a four-year-old child. Um, And, you know, so what would he resort to, to provide for his wife and child? Would he, you know, go in the shadows selling drugs or engage in some other criminal activity? Uh, And, and then the kind of, you know, uh, Beyond there, uh, from the standpoint of our company, I felt like as an employer and an agent of this company, I felt like we lost too. Um, you know, uh, here was a guy with a lot of capacity, a lot of potential to offer, who I could visibly see this guy is hungry, you know, um, and, uh, but we refused to see the person. We only saw his past and, 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 you know, this young man now has limited opportunities for the rest of his life. He's losing out. And Christina, I felt like we were losing out too. We could have had somebody that we could have grown with and that could have grown with us. And so that, uh, 
just having that kind of epiphany from those multiple standpoints uh, made me see that like, you know, uh, that all of us are losing in the century long war on drugs. And, uh, and it just, you know, it sparked a calling to me uh, to this issue. Yes, it is. It is an issue that has impacted my family, but there, you know, there are other reasons that I've gotten into this too. Mm, Yeah. Hey friends, you may be listening to this and you're new to this conversation or you don't agree with our perspective and that's fine. You're welcome here. But if you agree and you want to know what you can do to spread the movement, head over to enditforgood.com slash two minutes. That's the number two and the word minutes and sign up for our weekly two minutes for good email. It gives you one thing to do in less than two minutes to expand this conversation. You're busy and this is a quick way to make a difference. I think that's thinking through that employer situation. So I always think, you know, if we want to see something different happen, we have to recognize the way that regular citizens respond because that's what drives a lot of um, policy. You know, policymakers are kind of waiting to see, like, what would my constituents think about this or that? Business owners are waiting to see what would consumers think about, you know, second chance hiring, like what it, so there, there may be, there's some aspect of that, that is, um, you know, maybe a a liability piece, like, you know, maybe you wouldn't want to hire somebody who had been convicted on embezzlement to manage your finances or something like that, where there's some, some legitimate sort of company concerns over that particular hire. Um, but particularly in this situation, just thinking about, you know, what kind of precedent would that set really, I hear that. And I think she's thinking through, how is this going to look to the, to the outside world? What is it? What will people think if we hire people here who have a felony? Will it, you know, break down their trust in us? Will it be, you know, negative to our, um, bottom line? And so I think for us as citizens, voicing our support, publicly, you know, in a way that people can hear for hiring people like this man, for giving them another chance is really crucial because that's what's going to set the tone for whether businesses see hiring somebody with a, you know, felony for a nonviolent drug charge as something that's a positive that the community will respect or whether that's going to be a negative that the community is going to say like, oh, you know, those are, I don't think I want to do business with them. That kind of culture change is something that we control. Like that, that is what we do. We create, if you are part of the culture, you are creating the culture. And so the as more and more people can create a culture around restoration and second chances, that translates into businesses being open to um, hiring and it's neat to see, you know, there's there's um, organizations right now that they they promote the fact that they hire people who, you know, have criminal records or have felonies. And exactly. what I've seen is, you know, more and more people respect that they because mm-hmm. I think more and more people have had a family member impacted in some way by the criminal justice system. And they realize somebody's got to hire people. These are our, our loved ones. These are our workforce. Um, and if we're not willing to give them a second chance. And simultaneously, we're locking up vast quantities of people, then we really are, like you said, like relegating, you know, thousands and thousands of people to either have no way to support themselves or to say, well, I'm just going to have to break the law to support myself because nobody will give me a job. Um, So if you've never experienced the challenge of a felony, um, I think it's really difficult for people to understand just how hard it is to get a job. Um, if you have a felony, it just, that, that sort of like resistance of, you know, well, I'm just going to look at these other applicants that don't, instead of saying, you know, maybe, maybe we have the, you know, maybe this person, like you said, like you felt like your business lost out on that employee. Maybe this person is actually going to be an asset to our company, not a liability to our company, but really to be an asset to it. I was just talking to somebody the other day. This just reminded me of this, who said, I can't remember where this conversation happened or who this was with. Um, It was an employer who said, uh, our experience with hiring people with felonies is uh, they actually work harder than our people who haven't had criminal justice involvement because they're, they're their estimation of why that was, was um, they are so 
thankful to have the opportunity to work and to be able to find a job with that criminal record. And by golly, they are not going to lose it and they are going to, you know, make it happen. Now that doesn't always happen. I've heard another employer say, you know, it just has not worked out for them to hire people. So it's, it's there's no guarantee. Um, but I think it's, it, there's definitely a piece of that. I think that's what you saw in him was this hunger of like, give me a chance, give me a chance and let me prove myself. Yeah. It, it, it you know, it, it um, so second chances hiring, I think is, it is an emerging or, or budding movement. It's still in its infancy, but it is, it is getting there. And, um, you know, there's, there's actually an organization in Mississippi called second chances, Mississippi, uh, spirited by, by Zach Scruggs in Oxford. And there's another organization called, uh, right on crime that, you know, advocates for second chance hiring too. And they're, they're, they're doing a lot of good work as in so far as kind of changing the paradigm from tough on crime to smart on crime and then kind of backing up, you know, from there, like what even is a crime in the first place? Like, you know, this young man's just nonviolent drug possession charge where he's harming no one, you know, like, and he's suffering from an addiction. Is that a, is that a, is, is that a criminal issue? Is it a public safety issue or is that a personal health crisis that someone is suffering from? Uh, I think that's the big question for us kind of, kind of going forward. Um, and, you know, so how we, do you we, see this, um, what you're just talking about, so this sort of like, how do we see this as like a criminal issue or a, health issue. So you have, have struggled through this kind of, you know, how do we maintain sort of health centered approaches to drugs, as well as maintaining accountability um, in, in people's lives. And for, you know, what if they're harming other people, what, you know, that sort of thing. Like, how do you think through that? That's a big question we get a lot is, you know, what about accountability? How do you hold people accountable? You know, it is, it's, it's a fantastic um, question and, and it is a very important one to, to address. Um, and, um, it, you know, I, I, I think that, so going back to a statement I said a, a little bit ago about my brother is that, you know, he is responsible for his own life, but he is free to live his own life as well. I can flip that and say, Douglas, you know, you were free to live your own life, but you were responsible and accountable for your own life and lifestyle as well. Um, and, you know, advocating for what we advocate for, you know, does not mean that, you know, someone who, for instance, is suffering from an addiction uh, that breaks into your house to get their next fix and steals, you know, your pearl necklace you know, that's been in your family since the civil war or steals your loma or whatever it is that they're not going to be accountable for it. They still have to be accountable for that. Um, because that's you know, theft. It's not, that's theft. It's that's not drug theft. possession. That's theft. That's yeah. theft. You know, um, you know, so now we can have a, have a prolonged conversation about, you know, well, the root cause of that theft is, they're not doing it because they're naturally a thief. They're doing it because they're suffering from an addiction. So what is the means to both hold them accountable and, you know, try to restore their life? We can have a broader conversation about that, but that is still a crime that is stealing. And no one is saying that that should not be addressed and properly dealt with in civil society. It should be. I support that. I supported it before I came around on this issue. I support it now. I'll support it tomorrow and next decade as well. That is not that is not changing. Um, you know, I I I definitely get hold accountable for my life in all kinds of ways, you know, and um, you know, and and uh our board of directors here also holds me accountable as well. So, you know, yeah. I want every I want, you know, I want there to be fairness. I want there to be uh to be accountability. And let's just you, you, you know, um let's compare this to another, I think, comparable issue. Um, you know. In the 1920s, 100 years ago, we tried uh, placing a national ban on alcohol. We had an era of alcohol prohibition. It, it did not work. It was an utter disaster. And I think everybody in society today would agree that it was a disaster and we we're never going back to that. 
Um, but there is a lot of harm that comes out of alcohol, um, you know, and and at the same time, while we know, you know, that uh, alcohol is never going to be pre- prevented again, um, that there are accountability measures that we have to maintain in society for it. Um, you can still be criminally charged, for instance, with drinking and driving. So there are accountability measures around it. So, uh, you know, it can be, you know, it can be legal and regulated, uh, but you're also accountable for your use, you know, and, uh, and the potential harm of that, that use may cause to other human beings mm, and yeah. the civil society. Yeah. Really separating out what is the, the crime to somebody else? that's related yep. to this. And there's nothing about what we're doing that says, Oh, we should just let people do whatever they want to, to other people, because we just need to have compassion. No, if you yeah. hurt somebody else, you're accountable, just like you were, mm-hmm. you know, before. Um, that's, that's how a, a good society works. You can't just hurt people with impunity. Um, and yet we don't necessarily have to criminalize the possession of that substance, just like we don't criminalize the possession of alcohol, but if you're going to go hurt somebody after you've been drinking, yes, you're going to be held accountable for that. And, and let's be honest, there is, there is, there is nothing compassionate. Uh, there, there is a nothing admirable uh, or anything dignifying, which dignity is a big thing. Uh, but uh, there's nothing good uh, about causing harm to either human beings or causing harm to property. Um, we don't want those things happening and, and think in all cases that, you know, people should be held accountable for, for those type of things, but simple drug possession or drug use, should that actually be a crime, whether it is, you know, marijuana, drinking bourbon, you know, um, cocaine, whatever it may be, uh, you know, we just have to have a conversation about that on a broad basis throughout our communities and include people like, uh, law enforcement and faith leaders, you know, and, uh, and, and soccer moms and healthcare officials. And, uh, we're starting that conversation, but it really needs to grow. Yeah. So as you think about, you've made a, a career change to move into this work, to, um, come and work for end it for good. Uh, what was it, if you could kind of boil it down to one thing as we wrap up, that is the reason you would do that. Why, what is it that burns in your soul to make you want to make a career change and come and work on something that's um, challenging and controversial uh, for a lot of people? Um, what, what is it that drives you? Um, so obviously the, the original impetus was my brother, my family experience, and then this, you know, work-based experience. But, you know, it was interesting after that, you know, whole uh, situation where we had this candidate and refused to make an offer to him. Um, it, I, I went immediately after that, like that day. And I went and met with a businessman here in Hattiesburg who owns a bike shop named James Moore, who, you know, uh, he's been on your podcast before. And, uh, you know, he, he's from Hattiesburg too. So he's, he was probably the biggest, uh, you know, um, uh, kind of drug policy reform activist, uh, you know, uh, an opioid awareness agent in the Hattiesburg and Pine Belt area at the time. So that's why I, I naturally felt like I needed to go to him. And um, and so I asked, just started asking him some questions and he was like, I want to give you a book. And he gave me a copy of Chasing the Screen, uh, his uh, it's a New York Times bestselling book, Chasing the Screen, the first and last days of the drug war. And you've also had author Johan Hari on your show. Um, and, and as I read that book, hearing, learning about the history of the drug war, um, it really just changed my mind. And it showed me, um, and this gets to the crux of your question. It showed me, Christina, that, you know, uh, for the last 100 years, uh, you know, we have been trying to criminalize uh, drugs from with good intentions, you know, because we don't want people harmed. Uh, but what the the results that we've gotten out of them have just been abysmal. They've been the opposite of what we want. Um, we've held the officially the war on drugs has been going on for fifty years, uh, fifty one years this year. 
Um, but uh, since the war on drugs has been carried out, we've had increased drug use. We've had increased addiction. Um, we've had increased overdose death rates and we have the highest overdose death rates right now. Um, and our prison systems are full. Um, so we're not getting any of the results that we want to achieve. Um, you, you know, and it's affecting so many people across the globe. Today, one in three families in America are touched by addiction. And one in five families globally are impacted by mass incarceration. Uh, you know, the United States has the highest incarceration rate in the industrial world. And our own state, Mississippi, has the second highest within our union. Um, and, and so we have, we have a, a real problem uh, that is, you know, it's costing us a lot in terms of dollars. But it's also costing us a lot in, in terms of lives and families. And we all know that strong families are the building blocks of strong communities. So what I have come to learn is that the war on drugs, uh, whatever its intent, what it has ended up being is the war on drugs has ended up being a war, in a, an inadvertent war on people, on families, and on communities. Uh, and I think that this is one of the um, this is one of the uh, fights of this century, one of the top fights of this century in our society. And, um, and that just led me to, uh, to this in a very organic way, um, you know, and just started volunteering. And James Moore, of course, eventually introduced me to you. And I coordinated that event in November 2019. And it just after that, I was like, there is something to this. We had 120 people there like in quality people, our uh, mayor here in Hattiesburg, our incoming and outgoing DA, our incoming and outgoing sheriff, just a wide variety of, you know, really needed people at the table and um, the, building some of the unlikely, unlikely alliances that we are, Christina. Uh, I just, I have hope for the future. Um, and, um, and yeah, I just, I, I'm looking forward to the road ahead and, I hope uh, that eventually this thing, you know, expands beyond Mississippi. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. As we wrap up, is there anything else that you would like to share when, when takeaway you want to leave people with? Yeah. So, um, you know, over, uh, over the last 100 years, like I was just saying a minute ago, you know, we have tried, you know, we have tried, banning we have tried institutionalizing we have tried criminalizing we have tried stigmatizing um and it's only made things worse um it, so um since you know we've only gotten worse and worse results by continually just trying to bring down the hammer more it what could we do you know to to get way better results not that we're going to eliminate drug problems but how can we minimize the harms, the drug-related harms that we're seeing in, in our society? Um, of course, what we've concluded at End It For Good is that the best way to minimize harm with the drug market, with the substances, and towards consumers is to legally regulating them. But there are a whole host of um, options out there that we can start implementing today, you know, that don't even, you know, reach that far. Um, it, you know, so I, I want to invite people into this conversation to consider a better way. Me, myself, going through the journey that I went through with my brother, like when I, when I decided to, when I was scratching my head over, you know, whether or not to, um, you know, change my stance on the war on drugs, uh, I was like, can I keep the same values and principles that I hold dear and still make this move? And, uh, you know, what I ultimately found out like with you is that, Oh, I'm still maintaining the, uh, you know, dignity, humane, compassionate Christian based values that I hold dear. I'm just imparting them in a new way and it's going to get better results. Um, and, 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 and so, uh, you know, it's, um, uh, it, it's not easy to do, but anytime, uh, 
just like when you you said it on your TED talk, anytime that something we deeply believe gets challenged by truth and reality, it's always like an earthquake. And if we want to get to a better place, we have to walk through that earthquake or volcano, call it whatever you want. We have to do it. It's not going to be easy, but the means to get there are worth more than worth the effort in terms of, you know, saving lives born and unborn in the future. That's a mic drop ending right there. I'll leave it at that. Thank you, Brett, for being with us. Um, Really great perspective. And I hope people continue to hear the heart behind in it for good. Um, We want to save lives. We want people, families thriving communities better off than they are today. That's what drives us. It's what will always drive end it for good. Um, And we're really glad you're on the journey with us. So if you don't follow us on social media, you can find us at end it for good MS um, and join us there. Get on our newsletter, end it for good.com slash newsletter. Um, Just come, come journey with us. Uh, If wherever you are on the journey, if you're already on board or if you're just rethinking this, or if you just happen to know Brett and you tuned in to hear Brett's story, (laughs) you don't have any idea what end it for good is. um, Come join us. We want you on the journey with us, wherever you end up. That's okay. We can be friends. We don't have to agree on everything. Um, But we want to see more people thriving more people alive, more families having the opportunity to build um, uh, lives where parents are in the home, children are growing up and in good places. And most of all, people have the opportunity to, um, to thrive. That's what we want. Thanks. So how do we shift our drug policies from a criminal justice approach to a public health approach? By inviting one person at a time to change their mind changed minds are the catalyst to changed laws. But many people are only willing to have this conversation when they're invited to by someone that they trust. That's you. Invite your friends, co-workers, other people in your circle of influence to consider a better way. At End It For Good, our hope is that people who hear will become people who tell. Start a conversation and join the movement to end it for good. 